This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name's James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome back onto the show Air Force Power Rescueman, CIA Officer and co-founder of the anti-human trafficking organization, Deliver Fund, Nick McKinley. Now, for those of you who didn't hear our first conversation, that was episode 144, and I highly recommend listening to not only Nick's journey through the military, but the why behind creating Deliver Fund. Now, human trafficking has suddenly become popular again, which is obviously a fantastic thing, but there were some extremist fallacies that surfaced as well that were actually detrimental to the fight against trafficking. So we discuss a host of topics, from the impact of understaffing in the first responder communities on the fight against trafficking, the fallacies around adrenochrome, red flags for first responders when interacting with potential victims, an incredible app they've created to help parents identify if someone may be a threat to their child, the myths around most trafficking victims and how parents can identify those signs with their own children, migrant workers, homelessness, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful and extremely important conversation, as I always say, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I welcome back Nick McKinley. Enjoy.
Well, Nick, I want to start by saying welcome back. Um, I actually meant to look at which episode we did the first time, but I know it must have been, God, five years ago now that we spoke. So firstly, um, yeah, welcome back to the Behind the Shield podcast, and thank you so much for coming on again. Hey, thanks thanks for having me. I was thinking about that myself, and I, I believe your your podcast was one of the first kind of major major podcasts that I did where I I uh, I told the story after the whole you know Jack Ryan thing came out. Well, here's an irony as well. You you were kind of framed as the real Jason Bourne in some of the the videos around then. Since then, I've I've done stunts my whole life, and Universal opened a Jason Bourne stunt show, which I got to be in. Now, I wasn't Jason Bourne. I was told I was too old, which I think is insulting because Matt Damon is older than me. But regardless, <laughs> but yeah, so I got my ass kicked by Jason Bourne for two and a half years in a theme park. <laughs> well, hey, I mean that that's a that's badge of honor. Most people, I mean. You know, I, I'm, I'm kidding my, my butt kicked by, you know, my, uh, my five and, and six year old on a, re- on a regular basis. So, uh, you know, throw the Malinois in there and, and I'm just getting, uh, constantly trashed. Well, speaking of, of your family, I saw you repost a video the other day. And I told my wife about it, of your infant son at the time on top of the Roomba vacuum cleaner. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was, uh. That was funny. He, I mean, he rode that Roomba like it was a, a surfboard on a major wave. I mean, he, he anytime that thing was going, my daughter she would run away when she was a baby, but he he would he would crawl towards it and kind of fight with it a little bit, and then crawl on top of it and just you know ride it around the right around the living room. So after we had our conversation, you mentioned a woman to me, Naj, and I think it took us another year or so before we connected. Um, amazing story she was trafficked as you know from hungary into canada um ended up being you know rescued slash you know being a survivor herself and then advocating Mm -hmm. for other trafficking victims for a long time i know that she just stepped down from that particular role and has got her own project now i kind of want to give you the the microphone talk to me about you know the last few years with tamia and and you know what she's trying to do for the first responder profession now so Tamia is a really just just an, an incredible soul. Uh, she obviously went through some some horrific things, but the way that she has turned that darkness into light and found so many so many ways to help so many people, and, and she she did it as a trafficking survivor and educating uh, populace, and she was really one of the first people to uh, to go into the finance industry and help the finance industry realize their opportunity to to fight human trafficking and and her and I collaborated on that for a, a period of years to the point that we are now actually uh, helping financial institutions with data to identify human traffickers and and so she's kind of moved on from that and now uh, I don't want to get too into the details around what it is she's doing because I We've had a few conversations about it, but I don't. Uh, I don't feel like I could probably properly represent it. Uh, but yeah, she's doing. Uh, she's doing amazing stuff, and and it's just a, an amazing person to 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 work with. And I'm I'm fortunate to call her a friend. So we talked, like I said this morning, and again, I don't want to unpack the whole thing because I want to just sow a seed. I told her I just put a seed now, a seed of intrigue into the audience. But um, mm-hmm. one of the things that she became very aware of, um in her time advocating in this area was the growing um, 
growing issue when it comes to understaffing, especially in police agencies, and then that mm-hmm. then diminishing their ability to address things, for example, the trafficking issue. So talk to me about that through your eyes. Like I said, it was several years ago we spoke that was pre-COVID, pre-George Floyd, pre you know, a lot of the things that I would argue have really crippled the first responder professions. So what have you seen with your own eyes as far as funding, support, staffing, and that impact on um, fighting human trafficking? On the on the trafficking side specifically, things have things have gotten even worse. But that is just a byproduct of the of what you just said, that within the first responder professions, things have gotten significantly worse. So if pre COVID, pre BLM riots, pre all of that stuff, when you and I first talked, if there was a a manpower and and funding issue back then, well, that is just 10 times worse than it is today. And what I have realized and, and kind of what I realized about five years ago was that no amount of advocacy from Nick McKinley was going to change this. Didn't matter uh, that, you know, that I had a the background that I have or any of those things. It's just not I'm not going to be able to change that in in the, the near to midterm, maybe in the long term. And we're working on that on policy issues, but in the near to midterm that's not going to change. So we have to take the first responders and the law enforcement officers and the people who are in the fight daily around not just human trafficking, but, but, you know, child predators and societal predators. And we have to make them as efficient as possible. And what we find is that there's lots of noise and very little signal. So if a law enforcement officer gets 200 cases a month or 200 tips a month from, say, the National uh, Human Trafficking Hotline, well, that means that somebody called in, the hotline recorded it, and then sent it to the law enforcement officer of a relevant jurisdiction. That doesn't help that law enforcement officer because there might be some signal in those in those 200 tips, but someone's got to put the manpower into figuring that out. So you actually just made, we just swamped the law enforcement officer with problems. And what I've, what I realized about five years ago was that we really had to start collecting data and creating technology and putting that technology in the hands of law enforcement so that, and not just law enforcement, uh, fire and rescue, frontline nurses, emergency room doctors, child protection services, uh, caseworkers, you name it, uh, you know, it, the, the, caseworkers and case managers at addiction clinics, all of it, all the way down to parents. They just start empowering the public to participate in the fight because the public is really the first screen. Parents, right? Teachers, that's your first screen. But if that fails, then the next screen is really your frontline your frontline first responders staff. And I say frontline because while your emergency room nurses are not first responders, so to speak, they're, they're, they're not, they're not number one, they're number 1.2, right? They're right there. That's where your, your fire and rescue or your, your, uh, patrol cops are dropping those, those potential victims off to a frontline nurse, frontline hospital staff, frontline emergency room physician. That's why we need to empower the entirety of that populace to fight societal predators, not just law enforcement, because law enforcement and and human trafficking detectives specifically 
by the time a case gets to them, there's a lot of damage that has been done, usually for a period of years. So if we can kind of get as left of boom, as left of incident as possible, that's just going to make the fight that much, uh, not only is it going to make it that much more efficient, it's going to prevent a lot of uh, a lot of victims and the creation of a lot of victims, but it's also going to reduce the workload for parents, for frontline medical staff and first responders, and then for the human trafficking detective ultimately. So it'll just enhance and make the whole system better. So as you said, we we spoke several years ago. We had the pandemic sweep over. Focusing on that for a moment, apolitically, that had a huge impact on family dynamics, on whether a child stayed in a home that was maybe abusive, whether a child wasn't able to report or be seen by a teacher to, mm-hmm. you know, to realize that abuse. Just a couple of examples, excuse me. Um, and so I've had some people on here that are in the psychology world that are in the, the um, you know, the social services world that have observed a big spike um, after, you know, of all these reports and also an absence of reporting when children were kept from their teachers. What have you seen? I know, again, you're not boots on the ground. You're supporting the groups on boots on the ground. What have you had as far as feedback on that element? You know, regardless of a virus, regardless of all the politics around it, everything mm-hmm. was closed. People were held in their homes. Very safe for some people, very unsafe for others. Well, let me first just by, by saying that to say, to quote data, around the pandemic is not being political. It's just quoting the data, right? So to say that these problems got worse is a true statement of fact. Now, maybe there's reasons for it that are acceptable, maybe not. That's where your political conversation comes in. But to say that, you know, these family dynamic issues got worse, to say that the uh, the mental health issues got worse, to say that the uh, all of these issues got worse, that is a statement of fact. It's indisputable. Uh, and I think it's really important for people to understand. Now, uh, I'm not really qualified to talk on the mental health issues um, around the the pandemic and what it did, but what I and, and the underreporting issues. But what I can talk about is what my analysts tell me, who are boots on the ground with law enforcement doing these operations, and they found that during COVID, uh, we saw an extreme spike in the uh, in the number of customers that were responding. Uh, and we also saw uh, we saw a decrease in the commercial sex advertisements where these victims were being advertised, and we saw it move more to an online model where they were using OnlyFans or creating their own pornography and putting it up on Pornhub. They were they were making money in that way. Now, since the pandemic is has ended, we've started to see a little bit of a shift back to the standard model, but that virtual model is still very much there. And, and I think that's an, that's an important takeaway. Uh, but when we look at during the pandemic, what happened, we did see a spike in societal predators and child predatory behavior because we had these kids who were traditionally from lower uh, socioeconomic areas of the country. Uh, many of them had a single parent the parent was working multiple jobs to make ends meet which means that that child was under supervised but at least they went to school before the pandemic 
And like you said, they had contact with positive authority figures. They got a meal. They could get clean. Well, when we took them out of schools, we took all that away from them. And so when people think about lockdowns, you can say all day long that, oh, well, we need to protect society from this virus that's flying around. Okay, I, I understand the argument. But what about the children who also need protection and the only protection they were getting every day was the school that they were going to? Like, that is also a conversation that we need to have. And so not only do you end up with the underreporting, but then we gave them a computer and said, okay, well, you're now going to do your schooling online from home or from wherever you can get an internet connection. So we gave them the computer and unfettered access to the internet. So think of it this way. We allowed every child predator in the country to now access that child because the way that child predators access children is not by grabbing them on the street. It's not stranger abductions. It is by contacting them online and grooming them over a period of weeks to months to sometimes years so that the child thinks that they're the ones making the choice to enter that exploitation cycle. So let's elaborate on that for a moment. Obviously, I've spoken to you. Um, I had Kara Smith on the show, obviously, to Mia's perspective as well. Let's just get, kind of revisit the Hollywood version of trafficking mm -hmm. versus the huge actual reality of the danger to families within their own four walls. Uh, great, great point. So really, when it comes to the, the Hollywood version of human trafficking, there's really two things that pop up, right? And these are the things that anytime somebody finds out what I do, like, oh, Nick, former military special operator, former CIA operative, now fighting child trafficking, they're like, oh, you mean like Taken? Like, uh, actually, nothing like the movie Taken. Well, you mean like Sound of Freedom? No, nothing, nothing like that. If you live in Mexico or Guatemala or someplace, you know, some uh, impoverished country or developing world country, yes, you have more of a threat around the stranger abduction issue than you do in the United States of America. In the United States of America, non-familial abductions are extremely rare. And we know that because of the data that comes from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which is a phenomenal organization that does amazing work around the, the, the missing child issue. And one of the things I don't think people realize is that by law, every, uh, every missing child that law enforcement or, or every missing child tip that law enforcement um, opens a case on they have to report that that case to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children within 24 hours. So that means that the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children has become a um, has become a clearinghouse for uh, missing child issues. If uh, right, so just so that everybody understands that, like nothing is falling through the cracks here. Then, uh, so anyway, going back to the neck neck data in 2022. Uh, we've uh, National Center for Missing and Exploited Children had 27,000, I believe it was 644 total missing child cases. Of those cases, only 98 of them were stranger abductions. So that means that less than one half of 1% of missing child cases in the U.S. involved the child being abducted by somebody the child didn't know. And, and to kind of frame that a little bit, if you if you count the child population in the United States as roughly 22% of the whole, then that means that there are, you know, again, we're talking rough numbers here, uh, roughly 72 million children in the United States. What the NECBEC data tells us is that 
parents have a one in 10,000 chance of their child being abducted by a stranger. That is roughly the same chance that that child has of being struck by lightning. Now, what gets really interesting is when we look at the National Center data on endangered runaways, we found that they had, of the 27,000, I think it was, again, 644 cases, 25,346 of those cases were endangered runaway cases. That's 92% of the missing children in the United States of America in 2022 were endangered runaways. So what that means is that 92% of the children who were missing in the United States of America in 2022 knew what they were doing. And in most of those cases, the child was groomed online by the person that they ran away with. That's the reality of human trafficking in America. It's not the Hollywood version of you know, upper middle class girl getting abducted from a nice neighborhood and taken overseas and sold. You know, do those things happen? Sure. But they are extremely, and I emphasize the word extremely rare. It's not the child, uh, the the parent answers a, you know, modeling ad for their child and then goes to pick up their child and their child's not there, right? That's Mexico, Guatemala, Colombia. It's very sad, but that's not relevant to the parent in the United States of America. That's not relevant as much to the law enforcement officer or the frontline first responder in the United States of America. What's relevant to them is, you know, parents lock their doors at night, ground their daughter because she wore the miniskirt she wasn't supposed to wear, and she goes to her room and makes a TikTok video saying that she's mad at her dad. And then a child trafficker or, or, or just child predator, societal predator, however you want to say it, slides into her DMs and says, oh, that's just because he's trying to keep you from growing up. Your dad is, you're so pretty. Uh, let's have a conversation. And then for, for these societal predators, it's a numbers game. It's a business. It's a sales funnel. They know they've got to do that to talk. They've got to talk to roughly 100 girls to get 50 to respond to get 25, and I'm just using these, these numbers just to make the math easy to help people understand, but to get 25 to actually carry on a conversation with them, to get 10 to carry on a deep and meaningful conversation with them, to get five to agree to meet up with them, to get one to actually meet up. And that one child who meets up with them, their life is irrevocably damaged. And that all starts online because for law or, or for uh, for societal predators to contact a hundred children online through social media, it's a very low barrier to entry. I mean, that's, that's probably not even an hour's work if they're just cut and pasting the same message into into DMs. So that's the problem that law enforcement and frontline responders have. That's the problem that parents have is the predators now have access to the prey at scale. And yet we're using old antiquated methods of detecting that by in, by one-on-one -on -one interaction and expecting the law enforcement detective who is supposed to fight child trafficking, but they're also supposed to fight you know, seven other problems in small town, rural America. So they never actually get to the child trafficking issue. One of the most haunting things that Kara said, and 
when you think about it, it's so true. She's like, you look at the homeless population. How often do you see homeless girls, like teenage girls? She said, and she was talking about, again, the, the, the probability that a lot of the young girls are never going to make it on the streets because, as you said, by their choice or by being groomed, they're going to get snapped up by some sort of organization that's going to send them down the trafficking route rather than simply be homeless. Mm-hmm. At the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children estimates that 18% of their endangered run- runaway population every year enters the human trafficking cycle. So that means that every single year that problem grows. Now you have to assume that some escape, some unfortunately are probably killed, uh, but but that number grows by 18% of 27,000 roughly every single year. That's a that, that that's pretty haunting and that doesn't happen because there are these you know, global cabals that are trying to steal children so they can drink their blood, right? That that's not what's happening here. It's it's societal predators hunting their prey online, and when they catch some of that prey, they start selling them. It it's really that simple, and because it's that simple, it's very easy for these predators to execute this business model. So we have to empower the public first responders, banks, Airbnb, everybody to participate equally in the fight against human trafficking. So I think one of the the strongest toolboxes that you can give a first responder is for us to understand what the invisible handcuffs are for a trafficked man or woman. So again, they're not thrown in a rape van, you know, tied up and bag over their head. Um, so the question a lot of people, and I understand it now because of these conversations, is, well, then why don't they just go home? So talk to me about, you know, you've got this person being groomed, whether they think they're going to be dating this person, you know, or like Tamia going to, to get a job in a foreign country. What are the things that transpire next that basically virtually incarcerate these young men and women into that profession that most people don't understand because that that invisible pair of handcuffs like i said is i think the real disconnect between the hollywood understanding and the reality for anybody listening to this just think about who you know who's been abused so i I believe the statistics are one in three or maybe it's one in five it's one in too many uh women in the united states uh have been sexually abused or physically abused or emotionally abused or what have you. Uh, So now imagine a human trafficking victim is being sexually abused, mentally abused, physically abused, and forced to have a pretty extreme drug addiction. And they have all of those issues. And it didn't happen to them once. It's happening to them 10 to 25 times a day. So where does their brain have to go just, just to survive? We've we've worked with. I remember working with a 22 year old uh, trafficking victim. It's it's very rare that we get so involved in law enforcement's cases that we're working directly with the victims. It does happen, but usually, you know that that's law enforcement's job. They've got that. They've got resources that they direct them to. We're just providing them the targeting data 
and manpower and expertise so that they can go find the trafficker to rescue that victim. But sometimes we do get involved. And I remember a 22-year-old victim we were involved with who had had been trafficked really from from a, a very young age, um, but under our our modern definition of traffic trafficking, that really started when she was uh, when she was 12 years old. And even though she was 22, in her mind, she was still 12 years old. She got very angry with us. She carried around a, 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 a teddy bear. Uh, she got very angry with us when we bought her, you know, adult-sized clothing because she wore, in her mind, child-sized clothing. Uh, so <laughs> when we we got her new clothes and she threw those clothes at us and and just flipped out, didn't see that coming. Um, right there, there's all these different all these different psychological handcuffs that happen. It's everything from the severe paranoia. Uh, these traffickers make these victims think they're significantly more sophisticated than they are and that, you know, they've got people everywhere and they've got people in law enforcement and they can find them and they can track their phones and all those kinds of things. Um, they uh, they usually have very extreme addictions and and that's a business. It's a business choice for the trafficker because the trafficker knows that. If the girl gets out of line or starts trying to report on him to law enforcement, well, all he has to do is over overdose her on heroin and law enforcement sees that or the paramedics show up and see that. And they're like, okay, well, it's just another, just another dead heroin junkie moving on to the next one. And, and, and so no investigation is ever opened, even though that trafficker murdered that trafficking victim by what, uh, by giving them what they call a hot shot, right? ODing them on heroin. I had a paramedic tell me uh, we've got some training coming out that's very specific to uh, the the first responder community, and you know, and it's, it'll be certified for CEUs and and all that through uh, through the registries. And this paramedic was looking at it and told me that he had a case that now haunts him, knowing what he knows, where he was asking a a victim. Uh, or what he didn't realize was a victim. He thought it was just a, 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 you know, a heroin addict where he could find a vein so that he could get a line in her. And she said, I don't know. Uh, I don't shoot myself up. The other girl does. Well, he thought that was kind of weird, but it was like, okay, wasn't thinking about it. Well, that was obviously a huge indicator that that, that that girl that he was treating was being trafficked and missed it because you can't be on top of everything all the time and you can't know everything all the time. And so uh, had that paramedic been empowered with tools and training in order to understand the trafficking issue, very similar to the way that paramedics understand uh, the child abuse issue, uh, then that paramedic could have could have enacted a protocol that said, okay, if I suspect human trafficking, here are the things that I'm supposed to do, just like if they suspect child abuse. So we have models for fighting human trafficking. Uh, when you look at the banking industry, we have an anti-money laundering model. It works really well for narcotics and terrorism and all kinds of different things. Um, if it's properly resourced with data and technology, it'll work the same for fighting human trafficking. If uh, you know, we have the same thing for law enforcement, first responders around the child abuse issue, well, if we just give law enforcement first responders the same the same training and maybe a little bit of technology that they can use to check their hunch, well, then they're going to be able to enact the same protocols to fight child trafficking as they do to fight child abuse. 
same thing with teachers and then all the way on to parents. Because one of the things that is really important for parents and everybody to understand is the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children found over a five-year period that they had an 846% increase in suspected child trafficking cases. And when you overlay that data with mass adoption of the of the smartphone and the introduction of the Facebook app, it was really the mass, the first mass social media to hit the smartphone, which that happened in about 2008, you find almost a one-to-one correlation between the growth of social media and smartphone adoption and the growth of suspected child trafficking cases. So the problem here on the child side is the internet. That's where the problem starts. It's And we've had cases where it was everything from a gaming console, right, um, like, a, uh, uh, like an Xbox, to to every single social media platform to uh, just communicating with kids through online apps that you would never, like even education apps that you would never imagine that there would be predators on the other side of. Anytime you have a concentration of children, you are child predators are going to go there because for them, that's a target rich environment. With the paramedic story, I don't think I thought of this when you and I spoke, but certainly our conversation sparked this. So when I spoke to Kara or to me, or even had Greg Jackson on as well, um, another great conversation, it made me look back to a specific incident. And the reason why I remember this one is medically, it was a fascinating call. It was an opioid overdose, you know, cocktail of things, but definitely an opioid, but she was also hyperglycemic. So her high blood sugar created kusmols, which is very fast breathing. Well, I'm talking to a PJ, you understand. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so that overcame the depressed respiratory drive and it actually kept her alive. And then, you know, I gave her Narcan and she basically... Ev- Everything came out of every orifice. It was quite an interesting journey up to the hospital. But um, when I look back now, there was one one dude, about four girls total, if I remember rightly. And that would have been the perfect call for me to go, yeah, PD needs to know about this particular thing. It was a you know CD motel. But like you said, the tools for the toolbox. Back then, I didn't have those. I didn't have the conversations now I've had you know, with, with patients with um, autism or Down syndrome or, you know, CP and all these mm-hmm. other things that we just don't get educated on. But understanding, I think Cara did a great job, Cara Smith in that episode of laying out, you know, if there's lots of fast food wrappers, there's condoms, there's, you know, obviously um, drug paraphernalia, but there are things that we can see and it's so easy to dismiss, oh, it's a junkie, which is something I talk about all the time. This pigeonholing of human beings by a label drives me up the fucking wall. But- mm-hmm. If you're not careful, as you said, you just go, oh, well, it's a, it's it's an overdose rather than, as you said, was it a hot dose? As another call I had is a dead prostitute in a dumpster discarded like a piece of trash. And, you know, chances yeah. are that was probably something to do with trafficking as well. High, high likelihood. Uh, and one of the things around specifically within uh, trafficking is, yes, the trafficker will be giving the victims heroin. But they still need the victims to physically function. I don't really care if they mentally function, but they they need them to physically function. Well, how do you counteract heroin if you're not using Narcan? Extreme amounts of sugar, right? That's what they crave. So you find that a lot of these trafficking victims actually tend to primarily eat out of the vending machines in the hotels that they're being kept in, 
And what's in there? Primarily candy, right? So that's where you, you know, the, the fast food is, is one thing. It's a small indicator. And I, but I actually think it's a, it's an increasingly uh, not very good indicator. <laughs> if you look at the, the state of health of, of most Americans, uh, you know, three meals a day at McDonald's, that's, that's not as big of an indicator as say, uh, as say the candy and the big gulps, right. That like massive quantities of sugar. I mean, I know from my, like personally, from a health perspective, I try to keep my sugar under 20 grams a day, but these, these trafficking victims are craving sugar to the point that they're, they're intaking thousands of grams a day. And so, you, you know, what kind of medical issues are, are, are gonna, are gonna come from that, right? You have a, essentially you can end up with an extremely malnourished, very skinny diabetic. And it's something that like, oh, wait a minute, this isn't, this isn't what I normally see. Well, why is that? And I think that's one of the things that we as a society have to get a better job of doing is, is really getting to the first principles way of thinking about these, these problems. So why is it that we have such an addiction issue in this country? Why is it that we have such mental health issues in this country? Why is it that we have, we have all of these uh, physical health issues and we have an obesity endemic those are the questions we really need to be asking. And then I think even medically, it's when when we see something that is different, why is it that it could potentially be different? I mean, we're always taught, especially as paramedics, treat the patient, not the monitor. Uh, and and one of my one of my biggest lessons in that was I was in uh, I was in Afghanistan, and we had one of our one of our indige. Um, we again we were we were doing a thing in a place right and uh uh unfortunately i can't get into details around it but one of our our indigenous troops uh got shot in the chest uh took i didn't know how many rounds all i knew was i had uh i had two holes in the chest cavity and a hole in the top of the neck right around jugular area and then a hole in the back so i didn't i didn't obviously know what happened uh it was either in my mind, somewhere between three and four gunshot wounds and you, and in the cavity in a rather small Afghan. So that'll, that'll, uh, that'll cause you to get upset. And on the helicopter on the way to the rule three at Kandahar airfield, um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm taking this guy's pulse. I'm, I'm doing, I'm, I'm just like continually redoing his vitals because everything was fine. And I, I distinctly remember his respirations were like, 13 or 14. So they were, they were up there, but not that big of a deal. Uh, his, uh, I distinctly remember his pulse was 72 beats per minute after getting shot. Like I've never seen this before. And I've dealt with lots of people with penetrating trauma. And I, I really wanted to start giving him fentanyl lollipops and, you know, doing decompression diagnostics and all the different things that you're, you're supposed to do. And I didn't do those things because I'm like, something is wrong and I can't quite figure it out. Well, once we got into the rule three, I'm, I'm briefing the doctor and the, the doctors and nurses are looking at me like I'm crazy. Like, boy, this guy has really lost all of his medical capability because I was in more of a shooter unit at this point. And uh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And then they ran his vitals and it was the same thing. Well, why was it different? It was once we did the CT 
we found that it was actually um, the rounds that he got hit with must have been from quite a distance away because they'd actually bled most of their uh, most of their energy. And one of the rounds hit a rib when it first went into his torso and then moved tangentially through the fascia of his, uh, you know, of his torso and then came out essentially right underneath his pec. And the other one hit his collarbone and deflected out his back. So it was only two rounds, very low power, at least by the time they got to him. Um, but that wasn't, that wasn't what I saw with my eyes, but that's what the data was showing me. And had I started doing any of the invasive stuff that I'd done every single time until right until that point with somebody who had similar trauma, I probably would have accidentally killed the guy. So, or at least made his situation significantly worse. And so if we, if we look at it, we look at all of these societal issues through that lens and say, okay, well, something is presenting different. Can I take a step back and say, why? In that circumstance that I just described, it's pretty easy because I was in a very narrow medical environment, right? Is it war? People tend to die of only really a few things in war, and there's really only one of them, penetrating trauma, that you can really do anything about, right? Burial trauma, you get somebody, to, a surgeon, and the illnesses that come over there, you better get them to a better physician. Uh, and so that's, that's really, it's a very narrow band. We'll now expand that to the law enforcement, the patrol law enforcement officer or the street paramedic or the frontline emergency room worker. There's no possible way that they can be specialists in every one of these disciplines. They cannot be experts in, in child trafficking and experts in uh, child abuse and experts in you know, spousal abuse and experts in addiction issues. They can't do that. And so- you have a bunch of technology and apps and, you know, they've been backed by data that then help those frontline workers, you know, start answering questions. Uh, and then the technology helps them diagnose what might be possible or, or at least narrow it down to a set of things to think about. We've never had that on the child exploitation and human trafficking side. That's one of the biggest problems, and that's why we created an app specifically to help not only parents and reduce the parental workload, but also paramedics to reduce the paramedical workload and the you know law enforcement to help reduce the law enforcement workload to give them a better signal on where they should be focusing their time. Well, I want to get to the app, and when this goes out, we would have just released it, which is amazing. Um, I'm so glad that we got to have this conversation at the right time. Before we do, a couple of contributing factors that are probably uncomfortable conversations for people, but I think if we're blatantly honest, definitely are factors. The first one, there was a very famous um, you know, manhunt for a very pretty blonde white girl that was missing, and at the same time, mm -hmm. there was a, a African-American girl who was missing, and it was just blatant. All the focus was on this one young lady and not the other. So talk to me about, you know, you mentioned, oh, it's just a, you know, just a, a hooker addict that's died, you know, 
how do we overcome some of this bias that has been created? And I don't think it's so much skin color. I honestly think it's more socioeconomic. But a lot of us that work mm -hmm. in these very poor areas, that compassion fatigue, whether it's the responder, the people in the hospitals, or you know the community themselves, how do we overcome that? So some of these souls that are just less fortunate based on you know the the genetic lottery and where they were born and the household that they were born in don't slip through the cracks and you know are just discarded by you know by some members of society i think we have a frequency bias uh, right and uh, and an exposure bias because if you are continually coming into contact with a certain population and you're starting to see the same things over and over again then eventually you're going to start to you're going to start to um, assign those issues to the entire population. And I agree with you. It's not necessarily, uh, it's not a race or skin color issue. It's really in large part a socioeconomic issue because if you, you'll see the same thing with white girls who go missing in Appalachia, right? So an extremely impoverished area, predominantly white, and those girls will go missing and you don't see the same thing. Um, and I think it really comes down to, to two issues, right? So, so there's this exposure bias and I think we need to counteract that. And um, just like we have biases that we see medically where, okay, well, we, we have say an extremely obese patient or something and 911 was called and you're like, okay, well, there's going to be like four to five issues that I'm going to be dealing with here. And you find out, no, it's com something completely different, but you went in with a, here's most likely what I'm going to see. Um, but because protocols are the way that they are, uh, you follow the protocols and it shows you that no, actually it's something completely different. I think we need the same thing when dealing with individualized humans. Um, there's a, and, and let me give you a really good example. We as a society overly commoditize women and girls. And that is a extremely controversial statement that I'm sure will get us lots of hate in the comments, but it's true. And what made me realize that was there's a, a story on our website of a, a boy named Noah who was groomed through a gaming console and ultimately uh, kind of, to, to shorten the whole story, just kind of ran away. Um, because of the grooming that had happened on the the gaming console, uh, but then very quickly was uh, was found in an exploitative environment, and our team helped to find him and and uh, helped law enforcement find him really within a couple of hours, and they were able to rescue him. But that that's a that's a win. How many children were falling into that funnel, even though that one was getting taken out? And the reason why uh, a large part of the reason why that that child was brought to our attention was because that child's family was a, you know, rather well-to-do upper middle-class family. Father worked in cybersecurity. Um, he had the contacts in the network to start making things happen where those in the lower socioeconomic demographics don't. And so we, when we started talking to people about that case, you know, donors and whatnot, um, they got really angry and when I talk about women and girls who are trafficked, they get sad. Why the difference in response? Well, it's because I think they largely expect women and girls to be trafficked. They don't expect the boys to be trafficked. And I think we see exactly the same thing in, uh, depending on where you are in the country, 
your lower socioeconomic areas could be predominantly one race. And so then you will start to think the same way, which is, I expect that this girl was trafficked. Nobody expected the, you know, upper class white girl whose family had the resources to get people to pay attention. Nobody expected her to be trafficked, but they probably did expect it on the other side. And I think that is, that's one of the big issues that we as a society have to grapple with. But I also think that forewarned is forearmed. So if uh, paramedics, you know, well, basically fire and rescue and, and patrol officers and then frontline emergency room staff, if they are all aware that they might be, they might have those biases, then they're more likely to actually to actually take action to counteract them. Yeah, well, thank you. I think it's it's an important point. It really is because I I wrote in my book. I wrote a book about three years ago, and it was one of the very first calls I had as a firefighter. And it was you know epic compassion fatigue. It was where I worked at that time. It was ninety six, ninety eight percent Cuban. Um, and you know, most of the fire department was Cuban as well. So it wasn't so much a racial issue, but it was, this gentleman was on the floor. It came in, just like you said, projecting already, you know, just from the tones. Oh, it's a person down. Oh, the groans and the eye rolling. And then they get there and there's two Hialeah cops and they're kicking this guy. Hey, get up, buddy. And then the, the firefighters will just complete the semicircle and no one's doing anything. And I'm a brand new dude. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I'm just... The only thing I had going for me is I wasn't 18. I was like 27. So at least I was a, you know, had some life experience. So I just go down and check on him, you know, and make sure he's breathing and then check his pockets. I'm like, all right, well, let's see if we can figure out what's going on. And I think I've told this story on here a couple of times. So I go through his pockets and I find a piece of paper and it's a blood test result. And the man has just been told he has HIV. So. Oh. I think I'm pretty sure if I found that out, I'd probably maybe go take a, a few drinks myself and maybe end up, <laughs> you know, laid out somewhere. So, but this was the the insight into that. This this gentleman had ceased to be a human being to these responders, and he was just a disruption in whatever else they were wanting to do at that moment. So, mm-hmm. like you said, it doesn't have to be race or you know socioeconomic or whatever it is. But the moment that we find that compassion fatigue getting hold we do have to look in the mirror and say okay we need to reset whether that means take a vacation day whatever it is but it is our job you know the 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 badge on our chest we call ourselves a professional and that means that you you never let go of that element of humanity that sent you into service and you start pigeonholing and um discounting people based on they're wearing gang colors, they, you know, got a short skirt and they're out in the streets at two in the morning, whatever it is, you know, if if that's who you are, then that to me is when you need to either take a break or it's time to leave that service. And I think that it's something that I'm, I'm sure not everybody listening to your podcast is a, is a first responder. And it's something that I think the society needs to understand better is that compassion fatigue is very real. Uh, I've experienced it multiple times in my life. Uh, burnout is very real. I don't care how much of a robot you might think you are. Um, I mean, even Elon Musk experiences burnout on occasion. So uh, also vicarious trauma is very real. And one of the things that we're uh, working on from a technological perspective is to actually reduce the vicarious trauma load that law enforcement has to deal with and first responders have to deal with. 
that's more on the detective side, helping law enforcement find the human traffickers faster, uh, and, and, and to the point that they don't have to like go through so much material in order to find them. Uh, but then on the compassion fatigue side, I mean, the, the reason why we have checklists, right. The reason why we have, we have, uh, medical protocols is to protect ourselves from the times when we are exhausted and fatigued and maybe we had a, a buddy who got hurt. And so we're filling in for them and we're not always at work at our best, Right. Any, anybody who says that every time they're at work, they're at their best is a complete liar or a robot. Uh, either way, you don't want anything to do with them. So we have ways of protecting ourselves from ourselves, right? Protecting our professional selves from our personal selves. And I think that we, uh, and again, that's everything from rules of engagement for, you know, military special operators in the military and, and, and law enforcement to medical protocols for, for paramedics. So we need, we don't have the same thing when it comes to the societal predator issues. And I think that things like understanding why somebody does something right in the middle of working a code, you don't really care why somebody did something. You just need to solve that immediate problem because if you don't, the consequences are, are, are terminal. Um, however, then understanding what we do next to me, that's where context really comes in and plays a very, very important role. Uh, and I think when we look at the first responder community and we specifically talk about the child trafficking issue and the human trafficking issue, yeah, they might you might see that 30-year-old you know, homeless woman who's got a, a, an extreme addiction to opiates. But then and you got to treat that, you got to treat the overdose, you got to treat the issue right then and there. But then as far as what happens to her next, well, what if she's that way because she was trafficked when she was 12 years old? Absolutely. And, and, and that's the hole that she's trying to either dig out of or pretend doesn't exist. Well, speaking of addiction, there's kind of one more area I want to get to before we go to the app and, and, and the solutions and what you guys are actually doing behind the scenes to support our first responders. Um, when you and I spoke was a time when I would talk about the prohibition of drugs and even even the existence of those in some of the, the places that we were in combat at the time. And there was a very kind of tight-lipped element. And then the last four years or so, it changed and there was a lot more kind of honesty, vulnerability, et cetera. Um, for example, you know, a lot of the Afghan um, combat veterans were talking about all these fields that, you know, were basically funding terrorism. From a firefighter's paramedic's point of view, when you've worked in this country for, you know, decades, you see the impact of mental health on addiction, you know, prostitution, homelessness, you know, gang violence, I mean, all these other areas. And you realize, or let me rephrase that, I realized um, through my own personal perspective that the war on drugs was was an epic failure, that you can't arrest people out of addiction. That's an understatement. <laughs> so, and then what also, as you've unlined, underlined earlier, illicit drugs now allow the empowerment of, for example, trafficked men and women through that addiction. So just talk to me about that lens, because this is a, a conversation a lot of people don't want to have a lot of, you know, you and I were raised on the, this is your brain on drugs, you know, mm -hmm. generation. 
But then when you look behind the curtain as a responder, as a military member, you see the raw truth. And I think that there's an irony to walking out of a religious building, for example, being taught about love, compassion, community, and then stepping over a homeless person, calling him a bum, and then rolling your eyes at an addict. So what is your perspective on the prohibition and the mental health crisis? And if you were king for a day, how could we alleviate that layer that in turn would also help the human trafficking element? I think the the I think the first thing that we've got to do if I'm king for a day is mandate mental health education in in our schools. And, and I, I think there's a lot of, of education that that should be mandated, but we don't currently have like we don't talk about mental health, really. We don't talk about these issues. And it's the same reason why, you know, by why the first responder community, the military community, the military special ops community is actually probably the 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 biggest problem it's the same reason why they've had such a problem is because you don't talk about these things because they're you know they're not things that normal people deal with uh and and i think one of the best proxies that people can understand is uh postpartum depression that was something that was just not talked about and so you had a bunch of new mothers who went through a lot more trauma than they needed to just because they didn't ask for help. And now when you, at least, you know, I've got a, a, a five and a six-year-old. So uh, at least when my wife had our children, I understand that like postpartum depression is something that they talk, they, they brief the mother about in the hospital and they give her resources for so why wouldn't we do the same thing around broader mental health issues um, that are applicable that you know they're age appropriate and applicable to those individuals so they can start getting in front of them i i can't talk about the the general society um just because i haven't you know been a member of general society for for most of my life but specifically within the the military special ops and intelligence community there was no talk of mental health issues when i got out of the military uh, you were you were told by your supervisors, you were told by everybody, if you are having a mental problem, you suck it up and you deal with it and you do not talk to anybody about it because you're going to lose your security clearance. All these things are going to happen. And those things were all true. But now it's, it, you know, it's almost it's almost swung too far in the other direction where you get these special operators who have to go to constant counseling, whether they need it or not, because they're trying to diagnose if they have a mental health issue and they're, and they're giving them the tools to self-diagnose. So if we, as a society are having these, these mental health issues, we have to get to the bottom of why. And there are, there are reasons that people don't want to come face to face with. Uh, so again, you kind of get to the addiction side and, and prohibition on drugs. I think like whether you do or do not, I don't think that's really the conversation. I think the conversation is far left of, of that problem, which is, are you giving people, educating people about the fact that they could have a problem and then giving them the, uh, at least access to the resources to try to deal with that problem themselves right? The generational poverty issues, the gen generational abuse and trauma issues that a lot of children experience. We don't talk about those things. We pretend like when people walk into schools, everybody's roughly the same, except we have AP classes for the brightest kids. Uh, we have special classes, special needs classes for 
the kids who need extra help. But what about the children who are potentially experiencing generational trauma? Why aren't we segregating them off and giving them a uh, some special resources to help them become more productive members of society, to help them understand the limiting factors that they might have so that they can overcome those? And I think I'm a great example, right? I, I was uh, abandoned when I was very young. Uh, I was an orphan. Uh, was adopted by an amazing family in Montana. And so I always thought that because I had such a good family that I was raised in and such good parents, I didn't have any trauma. I didn't have any mental issues that I had to deal with. Well, it wasn't until I got out of the CIA and um, you know, suddenly I was not so busy. I wasn't working yet another hundred hour a week like you do when you're in those environments and, and you're just, you're just, you're asleep or you're, you're working. And so finally some of that stuff started to catch up with me. And, and it turns out that actually, yeah, being abandoned when you're 18 months does cause some, some psychological trauma that you have to, uh, that you have to deal with. It's not a big deal and it's easy to, it's easy for me to deal with, but there are symptoms there that I had no idea where they were coming from. And most people would tell you, oh, well, that's because Nick did 30 combat deployments or that's because, you know, whatever happened. Well, no, it was far, far uh, uh, earlier than any of those other experiences. So I, I think, again, just thinking first principles first first principles wise we really need to get to the understanding of why people go down these self-medicating routes and then also we need to take a better look as a society about why we're prohibiting things so i have uh, a number of friends from the special ops and intelligence op operational communities who had post-traumatic stress for whatever reason i don't use the term post-traumatic stress disorder because I, I completely hate that term because it's it's not a disorder. You expose anybody to the stress that they've been under and they're going to react the same way. So how is that a disorder, right? That is just what happens when you hit post-traumatic stress. And, um, and, and they have those friends of mine who have had post-traumatic stress and, and symptomatic post-traumatic stress, they actually have found some healing and some peace using psychedelics but they have to go to places in south america to undergo that treatment which is extremely expensive to get there uh, and if that was inside the united states that they were doing it no doubt the prices of the treatment would be significantly larger um, but they can't do it inside the united states because it's illegal why is it illegal if it's really helping people why are those psychedelics not on the schedule and, and, and why can I not be prescribed like really like, uh, you know, like an, anything else that can, um, that's, I think a large part of the problem. I take a drug for traumatic brain injury that is not normally prescribed for traumatic brain injury. It's, it's actually prescribed for narcolepsy and it's not approved for treatment of traumatic brain injury. Well, that drug has really changed a lot of my life and, and made me so much healthier and so much happier and more productive. Um, but the FDA says that I shouldn't be taking it for the reason that I'm, that I am taking it. Who are they to tell me what works for me and what doesn't? And so I think there's, there's a lot of, of things that yes, 
you know, not all prohibition is good. Not all prohibition is bad. And I feel like in the modern world, we've just lost sight of the nuance that applies to each individual as a person. Not all vets are the same. Not all paramedics are the same. Not all firefighters are the same. Not all mothers are the same. Not all fathers are the same. So why do we say that, well, you know, here's the way that special ops vets should deal with their PTS. And here's the way that paramedics and, and firefighters should deal with their PTS. And those boxes don't touch, right? Why do we have different protocols for, for different people just based on the environment where they were exposed to that stress? Does that make sense? Oh, no, you're, you're literally preaching to the choir. <laughs> you're underlying everything that I've said, you know, that we have people that, that serve their country that come back and have to go overseas to get, you know, psychedelics or ayahuasca, you know, whatever, whatever route has worked for them. And I've had so many people on here, especially from your community, that tried lots of other things. They were very proactive. And actually, a good friend of mine um, very recently, who's uh, uh, Army SF, you know, had this huge... Um, aha moment after psychedelics and he's very proactive you know and he's, he's been down that healing path but it was only when the psychedelics opened the door to his very early childhood trauma that he found the nucleus of a lot of his problems and even with the postpartum you know what's wrong with these women you just had a baby you should be happy what the hell I've had conversations with people in kind of the birth fit you know um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for but anyway the, the mothering mental health and wellness uh, you know experts of the world and they talk about childhood trauma and the correlation with postpartum so you know why when you had a child oh, is there this issue well where were you mentally before you you got pregnant were you in a great place or did you have some things locked away that this incredible trauma that is you know pregnancy and childbirth i mean i mean it in a positive way but it is it's a complete rebirth mm -hmm. for the mother as well if there's some unaddressed stuff that maybe come out, sadly, you just had your child and that's when it rears its ugly head. The same way as, you know, you get an Afghan combat veteran and it doesn't rear its head till the middle of Walmart three days later or three years later, you know, and they're lying you know, in, in a mm -hmm. ball on the floor. So I think this is it, is that, again, it doesn't matter if you're a veteran from a war, if you are, you know, like I said, a crip or a blood, you're, you know, you're selling your body, you're a sex worker, you're whatever it is. We were all children we were all toddlers once and the moment we remove that human element from the way we view people that's when we get pigeonholed divided and that's when sadly you know we see what we see now people pitting groups against each other rather than us coming together and solving these problems as a community at a very uh, a very famous political talk show host um uh, say that he didn't believe that marijuana was medicine. And that is a very uneducated and political statement. And, and there's no possible reason to make that other than politics, because there are plenty of parents whose children have been dealing with epilepsy who literally would have to move to new states in order to get their children THC because after trying every single pharmaceutical that could be prescribed to their children, the only thing that worked was certain doses of, P uh, of THC. So who's that political commentator who, by the way, never served his country, never did a single thing of courage in his entire life. Who is he to then tell that parent that 
they they can't use the very thing that is actually working because he doesn't believe that it's actually medicine based on zero data right or the special ops troop who you know put his life on the line multiple times and has some psychological damage from it that that troop cannot use you know some uh, some psychedelic under supervision that is actually actually working for them you know and, and another one is and you know because i deal with the child predatory and societal predatory issues a lot and we work with over at deliver fund we work with over 600 law enforcement agencies around around the united states actually i think it's up to over 650 now it it, it grows so fast i can barely keep uh uh, keep track of it, which is why I have an amazing team and that's what they do. But these law enforcement officers experience this vicarious trauma through the through the information that they have to continually come into contact with. And even though, yes, they are not experiencing some physical trauma, it's causing mental health issues. So who are we as a society to say what they can and cannot do to deal with that? And the, I think one of the big problems is, is we've limited the options, the legal options to the point that if you have a security clearance and you are experiencing some PTS symptoms, literally the only thing that you can do is go drink yourself into a black, you know, a blackout state so that you can get some sleep and, and you can quiet your mind. Like we've just limited the options to the point that, we are actively essentially facilitating people self-medicating in a way that is just making the problems worse. Yeah, 100%. I actually had Paige Figgy on the show, and she was the mother of Charlotte. And when you hear the story Charlotte's Web when it comes to CBD, a young girl with this horrendous disorder where she has unending epilepsy, Mm -hmm. She she was basically end of life. It was it was hospice she was in, and uh, she had tried all these other things. Found this group that was able to formulate, and it was basically predominantly CBD, um, and put it in her port, and she stopped seizing. And she was literally days away from dying. She just would seize postictal for like a minute, and then go back into another like twenty nine minute seizure. It's horrendous. And then Charlotte lived for nine years. She passed away. Sadly, she got COVID. Um, you know, getting febrile was kind of terminal for her. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the COVID, whatever virus, you know, it would have had the same issue. But um, that gave this young girl nine years of life. And it was a plant medicine. And even with the THC, I personally don't like that psychotropic element of THC. But I think CBD with that, you know, trace element of THC is phenomenal. But I know lots of people that THC works for. Cancer, people going through chemo that have lost their appetite, you know, eating disorders, pediatric seizures I and mean, all these things. Who the fuck am, am I, James Gearing, to say, oh, I don't think that eight-year-old should have cannabis for their, their seizures. But yeah, you can give them benzos all right. day. That's fine. No, you know, they're right. a true altruist, even if you don't use it. If it's working for people and it's safe then you have no business, you know, working against something that, you know, has been used for literally millennia. When you advocate and receive money, whether you're a, you know, an anchor on a news station and your news, you know, your, your television company is owned by drug companies, or whether you're a politician being paid by lobbyists of big pharma, for example, the Oxy, you know, Compton nightmare, and that's okay, but you're not allowing people to do psychedelics or THC or CBD, 
it's not about what's right or wrong. It's about who told you to say it. And that means that you've given up being a man a long time ago. And now you're a fucking puppet. And I'll go one step farther to say I lay all of this at the feet of our politicians. And I mean both sides of the party. I kind of hate them both equally because, um, you know, while I tend to be a a, a pretty conservative-minded guy with a biblical worldview, I watch people who are on my team, so to speak, right, part of my tribe and espouse to have the same values that I have say that, you know, somebody can't use a plant that God put on the earth to as medicine to help other people, but they can use something that we just completely created in a test tube. And I don't have a problem with the test tube stuff because that saves a lot of people's lives as well. I mean, you know, as a paramedic that were it not for pharmaceutical drugs, a lot more people would die. But we're not talking we're not talking about the the immediate emergencies. We're talking about long term quality of life. And we have, I, I think, in, in large part, created a political system. And, and it's the politicians who have created this political system, right? This brinksmanship where they, we are no longer allowed to think critically. You're one side of the, uh, of the aisle or the other side of the aisle. And God forbid you ever point out that somebody on your side of the aisle said something that was incorrect. Well, now you're a traitor. And that is absolutely unacceptable in America. We are supposed to debate. We are supposed to have conversations. We are supposed to be looking at data and 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 be an educated populace. It's actually looking to make these decisions as opposed to you're, you're with us or against us brinksmanship on every single possible solution. I mean, if, if you, anybody who understands what a, what a trafficking victim has been through if they were just trafficked for a short period of time, not even mention years, would the, the they would need to they would need to basically be a robot to not want that trafficking victim to be allowed to try every possible solution to overcome the pain and 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 the uh, the the psychological uh, problems that they have incurred as a result of being trafficked. And, and so I lay all of this at the feet of, of politicians. And, and what I mean by that is why are, well, like as an example, why do we have the American Heart Association, the American Red Cross and all these, all these uh, medical protocols around, around heart care? Well, because you had a bunch of politicians and political donors who started dying of cardiac issues. That's why. So they started solving that problem. You know, we had missing children and children go missing for a long time. And it took, uh, it took John and Renee Walsh's son, Adam, um, unfortunately being abducted and murdered in order. It took somebody with John Walsh's level of connection in order to finally get the government to start doing something about it. So we need the same thing when it comes to mental health in that, you know, we, we need, we, we need the mental health world to start pointing out solutions. And then we need to hold our, our politicians accountable for enacting those solutions. Uh, I get asked to talk to, you know, different civic groups and, and things a lot. And, you know, I'm on podcasts like this quite often. And one of the things that people always ask is like, what can I do? I say, well, 
you know, how, how do I get my police department involved? I'm going to go, you know, read the chief of police, the riot act, or go, go read the fire chief, the riot act. And I try to help them all understand that the, the chief of police, your fire chief, they're generals, they're soldiers who for the most part, solve the problems that they're told to solve. And, the, and who tells them to solve the problems? It's the politicians. So when you have a politician and, and this should all go local, right? It should be county commissioners, city councilors, right? All the way up to the federal government, but, but everybody in between. And you, and you ask them about what they, how important is the fight against human trafficking for them? Every single one will wring their hands and tell you it's the most important thing. And it's, it's the number one thing that they're going to do if they get elected or reelected, never mind the fact that they've been in office for, you know, decades and they've never actually done anything, but this is the time if you reelect them, they're going to do it. And I'll tell you how important it is. And the very next question somebody should ask, and this also is directed at the media, is I'm glad you feel that way. Please show me the budget line item where you are funding the advanced training for your paramedics in human trafficking and child exploitation. Please show me the budget line item where you are funding a specialized unit to combat human trafficking in your city. Because if it was honestly something they cared about, then there would be funding there to back it up. And I think that the reverse is true when it comes to this uh, prohibition issue that you've talked about. And again, I'm not an, I'm not like, I, I'm not an anti-prohibition guy. And I also don't think that we should, um, we should prohibit everything. We should, you know, think critically. And if something is helping somebody, we should figure out a way to allow that to continue to help them. And if you, if you look at the money and you like, you can't make a lot of money off of these, as an example, medical, medical marijuana products. I mean, you can in a, you know, small mom and pop operation, but big pharma is not going to spend their time dealing with these uh, medical marijuana stuff because they can't patent it. So it's not, it's not really worth their money to do that. And then, and, and I don't blame big pharma for doing that. I mean, I'm a, a, a business owner and yeah, it's got a pencil in order for them to spend their time there. I don't, I don't blame big pharma at all. What I blame is the lobbyists who then uh, right and and lo I've I've know a, a number of lobbyists and um, I'll tell you uh, I don't have a, a great taste in my mouth for any of them because they're essentially mercenaries who will do whatever the person paying them wants them to do whether or not it's good for society to advance any political agenda whether or not it's good for society just because somebody's paying them to do it and and that's that that's a problem because now you have a pharmaceutical company who has say an epilepsy drug. And, and it, and it probably works and thank you to that pharmaceutical company for creating that, that, uh, that epilepsy drug that I am not an anti big pharma guy. What I am is an anti big pharma being able to hire a lobbyist to then go tell a Senator who quite frankly, isn't smart enough to understand these issues anyway, which is a whole other problem that we need to deal with in this country. And then that lobbyist gets that senator or congressman or even city councilor to outlaw 
a plant that is helping people so that the only way that they can really be in compliance with the law and treat their child's epilepsy is to give more money to the drug that doesn't work. That's the problem. It's big pharma is not the problem. It's, it's the lobbyists and the politicians that are the problem. And until we as a country and a society start holding them accountable for what, what is an extreme conflict of interest, we're going to have a significant problem. And one of my favorite um, things that I like to point out, um, and again, I, I tend to be a, a pretty conservative guy, but a lot of people ask me like why I'm not a friend or, or why I'm not a huge fan of our, our, our past president. And the reason why is because his name is on the flight logs going to Epstein's Island. Now, you can point out all day long that Bill Clinton went there, but if you point out that Trump went there, well, then now suddenly you're a traitor. That is an inability to think critically. And until we as a country um, learn to think critically about all these different issues from mental health to child trafficking, to you know, pharmaceuticals, uh, to, to plant-based pharmaceuticals, until we learn to think critically about all these issues, we're just going to continue to spiral and make things worth, worse for the most vulnerable among us. Well, I mean, I agree with you per completely, and I've, I've pointed this out a long time. I'm, I'm disgusted with both sides as well, and I, I use a very simple definition. Like a leader unifies, especially during times of crisis. And the mm -hmm. last two have divided, deliberately divided. So mm -hmm. if your Jesus is a geriatric with dementia or an orange narcissist, then you need to really reframe how you calibrate what a good human being is. So that's my whole perspective on the last two. But the other thing that I saw, and then obviously with the Sound of Freedom coming out, it reared its ugly head again, was this white noise clickbait distraction that detracts from the people actually on the mission. And one of the words, and I sat with one of my wife's friends for an hour, I bit my tongue so hard I had calluses while she went on a rampage about um, adrenochrome and how people were sucking things <laughs> out of kids' foreheads. I forget even what her definition was. And I'm like, there are, there are, you know, we walk down the street and find people that are subject to child abuse, there's fentanyl overdoses, all this stuff, and you're getting pulled into this you know, extremism again, just like with the school shootings. You know, there's the pro-guns, there's the anti-guns, and these poor families whose children were murdered are literally used as political pawns, and there's no discussion on the family unit, on childhood trauma, on, you know, on um, psychiatric meds and the side effects of them, on violent video games and, and movies, all these small compounding elements that creates this vicious circle. That's the middle-of-the-road conversation. But it's just the World War One trenches, and this is what happens over and over again. You know, oh, well, have you seen who they put on my Bud Light can? That's what's most important to me right now. This is distraction. It's bullshit. So before we get to solutions, because I agree with you on so many things that you've said, but I want to clear up this because you did a video on it. Talk to me about, from a medical perspective, adrenochrome and, you know, the 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 middle-of-the-road truth about that and then what that and then some of the other dialogues that have come out of a, of a movie, have they added to the movement and fired people up or have they become more of a distraction? Uh, oh, boy, there's a lot to unpack there. I'm going to try to take this one at a time. Uh, James, do you have a lot of paramedics who listen to your show? Uh, yes, I hope so. Uh, so <laughs> maybe, maybe no one does. I don't know. <laughs> so, so you're a paramedic. Uh, what do we? What do they tell us about epinephrine? 
especially the epinephrine that's in the in the glass vials, if you're working a code, uh, say in a park on a sunny day, you leave the epinephrine covered, right? Because you don't want to expose it to UV light. Because when you expose it to UV light, it breaks the molecular bonds of the epinephrine and turns it into adrenochrome. Adrenochrome. That right there is the only argument anybody needs to understand about adrenochrome, um, right? So, uh, yes, there is a seven-minute YouTube video where I addressed the very specific quotes that certain actors were making about adrenochrome, and uh, and I addressed them biochemically. So this isn't Nick's opinion. I worked with a PhD in pharmacology to uh, actually make sure that all of my arguments were correct. Uh, but adrenochrome is an inactive metabolite that has no effect in the body. None. Uh, I mean, if you drink it, it turns just like if you drink epinephrine, right? You drink epinephrine, it basically turns into water. It processes out. Uh, and, and epinephrine also... Uh, for people who are not paramedics and or medical professionals who don't understand, uh, epinephrine is a very short half-life. And thank God, could you imagine if you gave somebody a bolus of epi and then and it had a half-life of three hours? They would, they would <laughs> have a hor horrible time in the hallways of the ER because that's where they'll end up, COVID or not. No one reports on that. Most of our patients are holding the wall for hours on end. But yeah, imagine if they had a heart rate of sustained 180 the whole time they were lying there. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it. it and so when you look at uh, the half-life of epinephrine, right? So even let's even just say for a, for a second that adrenochrome was an active, uh, um, was an active chemical in the body, then uh, if you were to take it, it would probably eventually make your heart explode, especially in the quantities that they're, that they're claiming that they take it. Um, you know, there was a, another quote where, this actor said that adrenochrome was 10 times more powerful than heroin. Well, you know that if it was 10 times more powerful than heroin, it would be one of the least powerful drugs on the street. Yep. Fentanyl will be your go-to <laughs> if you're worried about magnitude of heroin. Yeah. Fentanyl is 50 times more powerful than heroin, but also how is it that an inactive metabolite that um, has no chemical similarity to an opiate is able to uh is able to stimulate the opiate receptors in the brain that's fake news nick fake news yeah so so uh, again like i it was a I, it was a seven minute video that i did on youtube uh james will make sure that you've got the link uh, i will you know so that you can link it my whole point is that instead of actually thinking critically and going wait a minute does this make sense People say, oh, well, an actor said it, literally a person who, who, who plays pretend for a living, right? Somebody who does um, basically what my five-year-old daughter does, but at a professional level. That person they'll listen to, but, but they won't listen to actual biochemistry and actual science and math. And I've, I've, made, this, uh, I've made this claim multiple times. I made it in my video. Make it again right now. If the actor who is making these claims wants to publicly debate this issue with me, send me a location. I will show up and I will publicly debate this in front of whatever audience you want. And the, and the thing is, is the actor will never actually take me up on it because he doesn't know what he's talking about. Instead, he's just spinning everybody up 
for the purposes of of getting as many clicks as possible and getting and selling as many movie tickets as possible so that he can make as much money as possible. And, and then turns around and says that, oh, well, the mainstream media is attacking me and the mainstream media is, is saying that I'm a QAnon conspiracy theorist. Well, it's because you are like that. That's not the mainstream media attacking you. That's just pointing that. That's just them pointing out a statement of fact, because they probably thought critically and went in and looked at whether or not adrenochrome actually could be a drug to people and found that, no, it can't. Like It is chemically impossible for adrenochrome to affect the body in the way that they are saying and really to affect the body at all right when you have when you release any hormone into your body eventually it metabolizes and you excrete it right so if that happens with with adrenaline epinephrine that then gets oxidized as a protective measure to keep your heart from exploding and you excrete it just like just like any other hormone in your body then why is it that suddenly people would start trying to harvest it from children and why children why does it have to be children why aren't they harvesting it from adults and if that is the case then why would they go through why would they actually do that because you could make adrenochrome by literally buying some EpiPens and leaving them in the sun for you know for I, I it doesn't take very long breaking the molecular bonds of the epinephrine and then there you go you've got your adrenochrome so so none of this makes sense but people won't actually think about it instead they'll just say well some actor said it's true so therefore it must be true just to jump in for a second, what it reminds me of is when the frontline workers in the UK were bending over backwards, you know, responding or, you know, working in hospitals with no no vaccines at the time, no you know, very little PPE. The the UK's you know, the, the politicians' answer was we'll just stand outside at five PM and clap. And I think this is the same with this conversation. If we said that there is a trafficking element, and then more importantly, there is a sexual abuse element that is usually a family member or a family friend. Now you in your your household, you have to fucking act. You have to step up and do something. But if you point and say, oh, in this faraway island, there's a group of politicians sucking whatever out of these children's you know heads or glands or whatever the hell they're saying, you can wipe your hands and just point and do absolutely nothing. And this is what I see over and over again with this extremism. It's a cowardly way of saying, well, I'm not actually going to do anything. I'm not going to be part of the solution. I'm just going to blame. I'm going to become the most fearless key keyboard warrior the world has ever seen. And so rather than being distracted by the clickbait, you become part of the solution and you firstly, you know, take care of your own home and then you step out the front door and you become a mentor in your community and a protector in your neighborhood to make sure that the kids that you can physically see are safe and have someone to go to, God forbid, if something's happening in their own home. Absolutely. But I, I even think that it it goes deeper than the issue of just um, I don't want to. I don't want to look at it and put my head in the sand when it comes to why these extremist narratives catch on. Um, you know, are there satanic and demonic people who drink the blood of, blood of children? You know, especially in some, you know, very few tribes in Africa and things like that. Sure, of course that happens, right? I mean, there, there's always really, you know, 
and I use the word demonic carefully, um, people who are doing terrible things everywhere, right? I mean, that that is a that that is a constant in humanity. Now, that's not that's not the problem though. The problem is that we have this commoditization of women and girls that we talked about earlier, where if you know the whole reason, especially when you talk about in westernized countries, the whole reason that we have a commercial sex industry is because there's a customer base that drives that demand. And so there's there's a lot of politicians. We know that for a fact. Um, there are uh, quite a few American males. Uh, this is predominantly a problem that is created by men. Uh, quite a few American males who are engaging in the commercial sex industry, who are engaging in child exploitation. Well, if they were not engaging in that activity, then we wouldn't have a demand and we wouldn't have such a problem. So I think the reason that they, a lot of them will grasp onto these extremist ideologies is because they can say, oh, well, I'm not going to some island to drink the blood of children. Therefore, I am a good person because they don't want to they don't want to come face to face with the fact that that girl that they just paid money to on OnlyFans has a trafficker who's forcing her to be there and is taking her money. They don't want to come face to face with the fact that that girl that they just gave a dollar or, or gave dollars to in a strip club is a trafficking victim and her trafficker is in the corner and he is going to be walking out with trash bags full of $1 bills. We have we have photo evidence of this of this type of stuff happening at a, at a pretty large scale because the traffickers put it out on social media because the risk is so low to them. And uh, though that that customer, that American male, does not want to come face to face with the fact that that girl that they just visited that they thought was a prostitute is actually a trafficking victim, and the trafficker is two states away, but is holding that girl's baby hostage, and she's doing whatever she has to do in order to keep her baby safe. That's the reality of the men who are participating in the pornography and and uh, commercial sex industries. And I get a lot of hate and heat for that, but that's what the data shows. It's very true. And every guy out there is like, oh, yeah, but not the prostitute I visit. She's not a trafficking victim. It's the other ones. Or not not that stripper that I like. It's the other ones. Or in the case of a small town where I live, um, we have somebody who uh, um, contacted his 18-year-old son who was in high school and asked if he, if his son knew any girls at his high school who would want to jump out of a birthday cake at a party. The guy who said that is a predator would ask his own son to go find one of his friends to jump out of a cake at a birthday party. Now, what the and, and because we run in some similar circles, I've I've heard his his excuses. It's like, well, I changed that girl's life. Well, but because she was from a lower socioeconomic area. Okay, why didn't you hire her to mow your lawn? Why didn't you hire her to wash your car, clean your house? Why didn't you actually give her some mentorship and and a job? Instead, you hired her to jump out of a cake at a birthday party. That makes you a predator. And that is the thing that many American men do not want to come face to face with. And I think that's why we have a lot of 
grasping onto these extremist, you know, uh, adrenochrome ideologies um, because they don't want to come face to face with the fact that they're the problem, not not somebody who's drinking the blood of children. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense to me as well. I mean, every time you have, you know, try and have a common sense, middle of the road conversation that requires every single one of us to look in the mirror. You know, am mm -hmm. I being the best parent I can be? Am I being the best firefighter or paramedic? I mean, all these things, you know, when you look at the addiction side, you know, someone who has found their way down the, you know, the, the heroin path, you are looking down your nose and then you go home. And as you said, you drink a, a six, 12 pack of beer so you can get to sleep. That's mm -hmm. that you're the same human being. Just one, you know, like you said, one group of people said that one was an illicit drug and the other one was fine. So it is, it's, it's that hypocrisy and seeing others within ourselves. And the answer is to look ourselves in the mirror, start being brave enough to change, and then looking at other people in our community with compassion rather than, than hatred and disgust. And the moment we do that, I think we're really, you know, we are going to shift it. You know, and we are going to be part of the solution rather than this horrible, toxic, hateful, divisive philosophy that I don't think most people subscribe to, but it's been allowed to to permeate out on the screens. And so the more propaganda people get fed, the more angry they get, the more hypocritical they get, the less part of the solution they become. Exactly. Well, that was a good segue to solutions. So <laughs> we talked about a lot of problems. <laughs> so I want to get to the app, but just before we do, because again, you know, you and I spoke a long time ago, AI has now really come to the forefront that the, the technology I'm sure that you're working uh -huh. with now is probably even more phenomenal than it was the last time that we spoke. Talk to me about what Deliver Fund does to the law enforcement side first, you know, and let's dispel again mm -hmm. some of the myths between Nick's going to, you know, black his face out and go kick indoors versus what you're actually doing. And then we'll transition to the app that's going to help not only, you know, my profession, but also the the parents out there. Uh, yeah, so Deliver Fund, uh, and I, get, I think for people who don't understand the context, what James was referring to is... Uh, is my background when he said black out my face and go kick in some doors. Uh, I spent 11 years in military special ops, and then I spent a, uh, uh, we'll just call it an undisclosed amount of time in a uh, kinetic unit at the CIA. And so I've got 30 combat deployments under my belt. I understand kicking doors as well as anybody alive. Um, and at Deliver Fund, that is exactly what we don't do <laughs> in the fight against human trafficking. Um, and I also understand tech and data very well. And uh, it's very easy to watch as an example, a movie about, you know, the the hunt for, Os uh, for Osama bin Laden and SEAL Team 6 and, you know, incredible warriors went in there and, you know, killed him on behalf of our country and we owe them a debt of gratitude for doing so. But how did they know what door to kick? Who... For, for a period of over a decade did the work to find that door that's the heavy lifting uh in the counterterrorism fight and that is also the heavy lifting in the fight against human trafficking so what we do is is we help uh law enforcement first responders industry and now the public fight human trafficking by providing uh essentially we provide training we provide data and technologies uh, and then we provide advice on what we call an equip, train, and advise model, which is the same thing we did in the fight against terrorism. 
Uh, so for law enforcement, we will provide actual intelligence, actual target packages on human traffickers, and we embed with law enforcement, and then they go action those human traffickers. Uh, we rarely leave our keyboards. When we do, it's to get on an airplane to go embed in another law enforcement department, another law enforcement operation. Uh, with law enforcement, because they're so underfunded, there's no incentive for industry to create the data sets and the technical tools that law enforcement needs in order to be able to fight human trafficking at the scale of the problem. So we create those. Um, if, thanks to the generosity of our donors, we are 100% donor funded. And we uh, we create those data that data set and those technologies, and then we work with both industry partners and law enforcement in order to get those in the hands of law enforcement officers, so that they can find human traffickers better, faster, and cheaper. Because I can't solve the manpower issue for law enforcement, but what I can do is make it so that those law enforcement officers who do have the courage to go fight human trafficking are and as efficient as possible with the time that they've got. Beautiful. Now that's law enforcement specifically, and we'll get to where people can find that in a minute. You developed an app, which I heard you talking about on the um, Everyday Warrior podcast. Mm -hmm. This is phenomenal. Like I've done some research for some dubious shit when it came to something that was going on in my community that I was able to fix using the internet to research. Um, there's mm -hmm. some other things I've done backgrounds on. So, you know, it's not just your CIA, you know, operative agent caseworker, but obviously there's a whole gamut of other people that can use the internet, use technology, use your database to make sure that people that interact with our children are not coming from the background that we've discussed today. So talk to me about the development of this app and then where people can find it. So the app uh, is really, think of it as just a window into the data that we've been providing to law enforcement and industry for many years now. And um, and what this does is it allows the individual citizen uh, or, again, patrol officer, paramedic, uh, CPS worker, and anybody in, in that arena who comes into contact with children to actually be able to screen the, the communications data within that child's network. And I say communications data because the, what you put into the app which you can just find on the app store, right? You just search Deliver Fund or HT, so Human Trafficking Safeguard. Uh, it's going to be easiest if you just search Deliver Fund in the app store and there's the app, you download it, you subscribe, you're good to go. You can search a phone number and an email address to see if there is a connection to potential human trafficking activity. Now, if a number does not pop up positive in that app, it does not mean that that number is not associated with potential human trafficking activity. If it does pop positive, it does not mean that the person who has that number at the time is a human trafficker. I mean, we got data that goes back, you know, decades, um, but it does mean that that number was associated with a commercial sex advertisement. And, and so that is where in the, in the modern era what happens with human traffickers is they advertise their victims online, just like any other business. And in order to communicate with their customers, they have to provide communications data, right? They have to provide 
a phone number or an email address. And it will be expanding over the years and, uh, and months really into other types of communications like social media. But for now, it's just phone numbers and email addresses. So let me give you an example. Uh, and this actually just happened. I had a friend who lived in the East Coast, very, very nice neighborhood. He's a, um, a, a very successful attorney. And he downloaded the app and there was a massage parlor in his small little East Coast town outside of a big city that he always was concerned about. Um, and he ran that massage parlor's phone number through our app and he got a positive hit. Hundreds of commercial sex advertisements that are tied to that massage parlor. So then he was able to report that to law enforcement. And there's a report button within the app where you can hit the report button and that tags that data for Deliver Fund's future use and for law enforcement's future use. So then he was able to call his law enforcement department and say, hey, in our town, we have this massage parlor. And um, I know because I used the Deliver Fund app that there's shady stuff going on in that massage parlor. And then his neighbors were all able to do the same thing. So law enforcement gets enough calls and they're going to go do something about it. And this has always been the problem. People end up with these gut hunches. I think that this person might be trafficked, right? Paramedic goes through Deliver Funds uh, training for first responders, maybe went through our Human Trafficking 101 course, and now has a gut feeling that the patient in front of him might be a trafficking victim. Hey, what's your phone number? She gives him the phone number that she has, which is the phone that her trafficker gave her and runs it through our app and it comes up positive on commercial sex advertisements. Okay, time to get the PD involved because the PD, if she is a sex worker, is gonna get her the services she need or at least that's what they should be doing. Um, not arresting her, but getting her the services she needs. Because again, why is she a sex worker, right? We gotta think of context. Or she's a trafficking victim, in which case they can get her the services she needs and go after the trafficker. So we've essentially provided this monitor in this app that gives anybody with the app a window into potential human trafficking data. Now, all this data exists on the internet, right? This isn't data that we put in our system. Uh, we do have a law enforcement only system that's human curated data, but this, this is not that. This is all data that's out there on the internet. Like you said, you had some suspicions on some various places and you did the research and you were able to find that out. But how long did that take? What we've done is we've taken all that data from those various sources, compiled it, deduplicated it, um, and made it so that it's easy, quick and easy to search. So if we can get everybody to download the app, and become a sensor in the network that detects human trafficking, it's going to be really, really hard for the traffickers to hide. And the analogy I like to use is, imagine, imagine a forest at night and you've got bad guys hiding in the forest and there's good guys in there too. And you just use a really bright spotlight, right? One of those big searchlights and you shine it into the forest from the outside. Well, what that does is it, it illuminates some areas, but it also creates a lot of shadows where the bad guys can move into that shadow and hide. That is traditionally the way that we have fought human trafficking. What we are now doing with this app is giving every person in the forest, every good, good guy in the forest, a flashlight. So now there's nowhere for these child predators and societal predators to hide.
Sounds amazing. It really does. And this is the thing. Every single one of us being a small part of the solution. Before we hit record, one thing I just want to touch on, I'm going to do some closing questions. I want to be mindful of your time. But just quickly, because I think it's an important part of this conversation too, the adrenochrome issue, you know, the, the, the film being released, there, anyone who has a social media account sees that sometimes they seem to be able to reach a lot of people and other times you post something like, oh, that's weird, that barely got to anyone. Um, talk to me about the the kind of almost hypocritical element of uh, an organization like Deliver Fund trying to use words that are absolutely pertaining to the thing you're trying to fix, but these algorithms and censorship are actually preventing you from getting the message out. The, the problem here is like you said it's the conspiracy theories around adrenochrome and and you know zip ties on the car that's a it that's a human trafficker marking your car and uh what was the other one it was a, a water bottle on the car like all these things are just absolute complete garbage and complete nonsense um and it and and if you believe them just either think critically or unfollow me uh, <laughs> cause I just, I, I just get sick of the complete lack of critical thinking. Um, what it does is it means that the algorithms within YouTube and, and, you know, Instagram and wherever start to see certain language as politicized and then, and then the algorithms will attribute that language in the future to political speech. And let me give you a great example. Um, men's journal. Not exactly a controversial or political <laughs> publication. Uh, they did a, an article on the work that we're doing at Deliver Fund, and it said the headline was something like, you know, former CIA operative goes to war against human trafficking. You know, it's something very innocu innocuous. They couldn't put any advertising money behind it because the algorithms denied that because it said it was political speech. Now, since when did human trafficking become political speech? And it's and and contrary to conspiracy theories, it's not people doing this because there's no possible way that you could, that Meta or anybody could hire enough people to do this. It's algorithms. It's AI that's learning from the context of what is being put by other people on the internet. So after this movie came out. The term human trafficking became very politically charged to the point that the algorithms started actually decreasing the ability, uh, the, the reach. So it's actually hurt the movement significantly. And that's where, again, all the crap that was being talked about with his adrenochrome stuff. And, and, and also, if I can, I want to defend our, our, our law enforcement officers a little bit because you had an actor running around saying that three-letter agencies are involved in child trafficking and that there were agents that knew about this, but they were too afraid to come forward. Well, I'm sorry when somebody, all they ever did was play pretend for a living, but these men and women in law enforcement are not cowards. And by saying that they're too afraid to come forward is calling them cowards. And that's just something I'm not going to stand for. And as a former CIA operative saying that, three-letter agencies and then specifically saying that the CIA was involved in child trafficking is quite frankly just absolute cowardice and that actor is welcome for his freedom that he did nothing to provide 
Uh, most of the people in the CIA who are doing that kind of uh, work at the highest levels, most of them are veterans. So, so what you're, you're pro veteran and like veterans are good unless they get recruited in the CIA and then suddenly they become bad. Like this is just complete nonsensical. And, and to say that there's this like massive conspiracy theory is to say that the good men and women in law enforcement are, are burying their heads and turning a blind eye to child exploitation. That's to say that the men and women that are part of the military and the special operations community, which does a lot of work for the intelligence community, uh, that those people are a bunch of cowards and they are allowing child exploitation to continue. It's saying that the men and women in the FBI and HSI and all these places that are fighting child exploitation every single day that they're not good at their jobs or they're too afraid to speak up and it's absolute garbage and we as a society need to stop allowing people to say things like that because it dis it, it completely discredits the work of the people that are putting their lives on the line every single day and it discredits the work of the men and women who have died fighting this war against child exploitation which is way more than some actor ever did and, and so we need to, again, not only hold our politicians accountable for this, but we also, when, when we have people in society, especially big names, who are saying this kind of garbage, we need to push back and we need to defend our law enforcement officers that are keeping us safe every single day. We need to, you know, we need to defend our first responders that are responding to, to the problems that we have in our everyday life. And we need to defend our military and intelligence agencies and not allow other people who've never done anything except play pretend um, to discredit uh, those who, you know, those who have died fighting a war against evil. And it, it's like, I just, I'm just not going to stand for it anymore. And that's why I made the, uh, that adrenochrome video was because I too <laughs> kept getting the text messages and the emails and and I just I just was sick of having to try to teach people to think. So I put out a YouTube video so now I can just send them a link. Uh, and um, we need to understand the harm that is done when we spread conspiracies because what we're doing is is we're just training the internet uh, what to uh, we're training the internet to, to take those terms and actually push them down uh, under the clouds where they can't, they can't really see the light of day that they need to see. So because somebody is out there saying a lot of false things about this adrenochrome conspiracy theory, and because other people are sharing that, we now cannot get the actual truth out there, the actual truth as backed up by biochemistry and math, not something that somebody just said, just trust me, it's, it, it's, it's out there. Right. I mean, so, so we need to think about our actions as society and say, okay, if I share this thing on social media, am I going to be helping or hurting? If everybody would just take a half a second to ask themselves that question and then act accordingly, we would have a much, much more peaceful society and a much less bifurcated society. I think a great example of exactly what you're talking about was the pandemic. And I said this from day one all the way through and when we still revisit it because, you know, there were so many mm -hmm. lessons that were discarded. But 
the no matter whether you subscribe to the very pro-vax philosophy, anti-vax, whatever it is, there was a truth in the nucleus that is, it's a opportunistic virus. And if someone is a healthy human being, and I'm not just talking about to look at from the outside, but physiologically, then they're going to get ill a little bit, and then they're going to be fine, and then they're going to move on. But if you have diabetes, if you are hyper, um, you know, hypertensive and all these things, you know, obviously obesity-related diseases were a huge part, you know, pulmonary issues, um, there mm-hmm. is going to be a much you know, graver diagnosis and possibly it's going to be terminal for you. So the only truth of those two years was we need to reduce everyone's stress and we need to work from day one at making sure that when we come out the other end, that we have put things in place to make the United States of America an environment that forges health, that starts declining the obesity epidemic that we're in. And when we came out, nothing had been done, the physical education in schools, the same shitty food, the same fast food and soda machines were still in our schools. Nothing had changed because you got so sucked into the clickbait bullshit that you were distracted from the actual things that you could do to make this country better. And that's how I see that. I mean, even mental health, you can't use the word suicide on social media. Well, how the fuck are you supposed to talk about suicide? So this, I agree with you a thousand percent. We have to get away from those two extremes, come back into the middle, roll up our sleeves, and each and every one of us be part of the solution rather than some keyboard warrior putting out, you know, just toxic shit and actually compounding the problem rather than being part of the solution and and we need to stop being so arrogant as to think that we know what is best for somebody else everybody's got different medical issues um so i'm a great example i do not talk about whether or not i got vaccinated or not because quite frankly that's personal medical uh information and it's nobody else's business i never told anyone if i had a tetanus shot before either (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah, yeah and we need, we need to we need to uh we need to stop normalizing talking about our you know personal medical issues that we don't necessarily want to uh you know want to talk about or like like anybody like it matters to anybody else and um so i'm a great example so to say that a vaccine is or is not good for me, and there are lots of people who would say, hey, Nick, uh, you should get vaccinated. And there are lots of people who say, Nick, you shouldn't get vaccinated. Really? Um, how can you say that? So I have traumatic brain injury from a uh, from the service in the military uh, and at the CIA. How is that vaccine going to affect my traumatic brain injury? How is it not going to affect my traumatic brain injury? What is it going to do to the other drugs that I'm taking? Are there any contraindications, right? That's why we have personal doctors so that we can have conversations with our personal doctor who can inform us and we can make a decision that we feel is best for us. So that goes all the way back to the beginning of this conversation. We're talking about the you know prohibition of, uh, of certain substances just that are working for people, but somebody who doesn't have to deal with those issues says, well, I don't believe that they're actually working for somebody. Therefore, I'm going to pass policy and law to make it so that you can't use those, or that's not good for my pocketbook and my portfolio. So I'm not going to allow those things to go through. You have to, you have to continue to buy drugs from the people who are good for my, you know, my, my personal wealth building. 
all the way down to when we talk about child exploitation and and human trafficking, uh, actually holding those politicians accountable and not putting the onus on the first responders as if you know they they aren't paying as much attention to this because they don't want to. I couldn't agree more. Well, speaking of the first responder professions, we talked about the app being on the App Store um, from September first, yes. which is when this will be out. Um, but also, you have you know so much available to you know the for the police, fire, paramedic, all, and they said mm-hmm. doctors and nurses. You have classes. I remember um, Greg Jackson talking about doing the ones that, where he is in Albuquerque. Um, mm-hmm. So, talk to me about. Um, whatever you know all the the courses that are on that site and then where can people find that site so they can access not only education but as you're talking about the resources if it's a uh, law enforcement agency so they can have this incredible support from deliver fund to help them pinpoint the people that they need to be they need to be kicking the doors in sure uh so first is uh everybody just needs to download and subscribe to the app that, that's really the first step. Uh, even even the even a law enforcement detective, if they don't have any other way of screening phone numbers, that that's that's what they should use. Uh, and running phone numbers and email addresses through it. If again, if if only half the population did that, it would be extremely difficult for uh, for human traffickers and 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 child predators to hide anywhere. The second is uh, for first responders. Uh, we have a series of uh, of courses that are coming out. Everything from human trafficking 101 to human trafficking specific to first responders. Uh, those courses are uh, are all going to be available through the deliverfund.org website, and that's deliver, as in deliver a package, fund.org. And regardless of who you are, you're an industry partner, you're a uh, a, a, a soccer mom, you're a first responder, you're, everything is there uh, at deliverfund.org and you can find the resource that works best for you. If you are uh, a professional and you can and you need a continuing education credit uh, and there's an opportunity to educate you on the human trafficking side and you don't see a course uh, from the Deliver Fund site that actually works for you, please sign up for our email because we actually will distribute this stuff through newsletters. We put it on social media as well, but sign up for our emails and you'll you'll get that direct to your inbox. Uh, and then also a good way to just stay on top of the resources that we're making available to you is to is to follow us on social media. So for me, it's at the.nick.mckinley on Instagram and just at the Nick McKinley on everything else. And uh, and then at Deliver Fund on all of the platforms, uh, and we we use those social media platforms along with our newsletters to keep people informed. Now, if you're a law enforcement first responder or something like that, we have very specific newsletters that we will send out to you. That is information that we don't make available to the general public. So please contact us, get signed up, and we'll make sure that you you get what you need to to be successful in this fight. When the film came out, obviously there was a lot of discussion about this topic. My perspective was, is this going to gain a foothold? Are people going to be part of the solution? Or is it going to be there until the next shiny object comes along and then off they go again? So if people are listening and they want to donate, they want to support Deliver Fund and all the incredible work you're doing, how can they go about that? 
best way to do that is deliverfund.org forward slash donate, or just go to deliverfund.org and click that donate button in the upper right-hand corner. The reason why we're able to provide this training and data to law enforcement for free, the reason why uh, you know, you'll see the app has a subscription. It's a dollar ninety nine a month, or I think it's something like eighteen dollars for if you want to pay for the whole year up front, which is extremely cheap when you consider the uh, the data you get access to and the complexity of the technology. Why are we able to make it so cheap so that it's affordable to everybody? Well, it's because it's highly supplemented by donors. And I think when you talk about donation, a lot of people think that you need to be a Mackenzie Bezos or you need to be a, a, a you know, a, a Bill Gates or or somebody with all of these resources. Uh, never underestimate the power of the widow's might. If you remember that story from the Bible, uh, it, you know, a might was actually a coin, and and you know, five dollars a month is all some people can do. And that's extremely helpful. And we have other people who can do $5,000 a month. And that's obviously very helpful as well. Uh, but if we collectively are everybody working together to fight human trafficking and, and you know, using the app, actually taking the training so that we know what um, we know that what we're talking about and we can think critically and distill com conspiracy theory from from actual fact and truth and we are um, all contributing to the fight then we're going to have a lot better society for our children i couldn't agree more well nick i want to thank you again we've been chatting for two hours this time and it's been an incredible conversation uh you know thank you for what you've been doing as you we talked about before you've been doing this for over a decade now so you know this isn't just a a hot topic at the moment you know you and i spoke years before and now we're revisiting to, to first you see where you are and also just you know get people back in the middle of the road where they themselves can be part of the solution so i want to thank you for the work that you're doing in deliver fund and i want to thank you again for coming on the behind the shield podcast today hey thanks for having me james appreciate the work that you do